Icons of Real Estate, Oregon. Are you ready to learn from the real life experiences and the proven money-making secrets of Oregon's top producers? If you're an ambitious real estate agent in Oregon ready to skyrocket your business, then this podcast is for you. I'm your host, Maureen Healy, licensed Oregon realtor. Tune in weekly where every guest will have a story to tell and tips to share to help you increase your own business. Brought to you by the Masters in Real Estate Marketing, Arter SEO, and your all-inclusive real estate platform, Icons of Real Estate. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me today. My name is Maureen Healy. I am a realtor in the Portland, Oregon area and the host of the Icons of Real Estate Oregon podcast. I am so excited today. I have Wendelin Cooper, who is a realtor with Cascade Sotheby's International Realty in Bend, Oregon. And we have a lot of really cool things to cover today. Um, Wendy's coming to us from her beautiful home office, which is so amazing. I had to compliment her on that. Hi, Wendy. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you today? Good. Thank you for joining me. I always like to start with a little bit of history lesson and rewind to how long you've been in real estate and what brought you into this world. What did you do before and what made you interested in jumping into this career field? Um, so I've had my license since 2005. I did real estate very part-time. Um, I got into real estate. I used to work um, on location for film production. And for many years, I worked for the actor, William Hurt, and his accountants embezzled all of his money. Oh and, my he gosh. Me, and he wasn't working at the time. Oh, no, I had to go find um, some work. And I went to work for a real estate office in the interim, and she encouraged me to get my license. And so I got my license in 2005, but continued working with William and just did real estate part-time. And then I later owned a gym. And um, about five years ago, my business partners there bought me out and I went into real estate full-time. Okay. So how long have you been in Bend? And I've what been in Bend since before? 2004. Okay. And where did you live prior to that? Um, I lived in Virginia and New York City. And um, I grew up in uh, Paulsville outside of Seattle, Washington. And also then my in high school, my parents moved to Sun Valley, Idaho, and they're still there. Oh, fun. A lot of beautiful places. You've been- yeah. East coast, West coast, and little in between. And there was Montana stuck in there for college and <laughs> lots of beautiful places. And now you're in the high desert in central Oregon. Yeah. Do you and like that climate? It's beautiful. It was one of the first places I landed that felt like home because I traveled so much for work. Mm. This was one place I wanted to stay. And while I was working for William Hurt, his children lived near Bend. And so it kind of made sense to relocate everything from the East coast to, um, Oregon. Okay. It's such an interesting connection. Yeah. It's not the usual story that we hear. <laughs> no. In, so I worked um, traveling from Bend for several years. And then when my daughter was born in 2012, I decided I wanted to um, stay put. So Bend became more full-time. I can understand. And, and you have how many kids? I have two kids. I have an 11-year-old and a six-year-old. Oh. And do you have boys, girls, or one of each? My son is six and my daughter is 11. Oh gosh. So I also have younger, well, one younger, one teenager. I have a nine-year-old and a 16-year-old. And one of the things that I find um, a, a little bit of a challenge is how to balance this job that can be not 24-7, but definitely it can go late evenings, weekends, holidays sometimes. How do you balance that with um, your family life? I mean, that's tricky. I feel really fortunate. I get to pick my kids up from school every day. I have 
set my work day kind of around their schedule. Sometimes they get to come with me to see houses, sometimes not. Mm -hmm. I try to keep Sundays for our family. And um, I mean, it is a fluid schedule and sometimes, you know, it just takes an hour on a Saturday to put something together and other times it's not. So it, it's not something that I have found can have hard and fast rules. Sure. Um, but, you know, just like anything, creating a balance is kind of your mindset and approach to it and making sure that you're getting taken care of with good nutrition and exercise and all of that. It's definitely a balancing act. Yeah, for sure. It's a juggle. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about your business in and around Bend. What kind of properties do you focus on? And I, I, in our previous conversations, I know we talked a little bit about you working on land and also some commercial in addition to residential. Yeah. So, um, I do probably like 20 to 30% commercial and the rest is residential. I got into commercial because of um, owning part of a gym and we needed a space. And so that was kind of my first dive into commercial. And before I worked for William Hurt, I worked for a Washington power couple uh, in Washington, DC. And she had a private family wealth office. And I learned a lot about financial management through that and also through another employer. And so I have always thought of real estate as wealth building. It's a wealth building tool and it can be a wealth building tool in commercial. It can be in residential. That is kind of my common thread through both of them is that they need to be an asset that's either making money for you or has the potential to, even if it's your primary residence, I want to make sure your mortgage payment is a rent payment and that you would be able to pivot if you needed or wanted to. So I think the reason I go into commercial is because I understand business. I spent a period of my time streamlining businesses. I worked with a bankruptcy attorney and cleaned up businesses and did a lot of financial management. So, and the nice thing about commercial is um, it's black and white. It works or it doesn't. The numbers pencil or they don't. And that is kind of fun to work with because it's a math equation rather than um, residential can be a lot more emotional. Yes, definitely. I like the idea of commercial. It's not something that I've ever personally worked on or ventured into, but um, I actually have a uh, one of my favorite title company reps that I work with. She has had some commercial investments on the side with her uh, ex-husband. And she told me this story one time that I thought was the coolest. Years ago, they owned a commercial building in, a. she lives here in Portland, but she had a, they had a commercial building in somewhere in Alaska that was an O'Reilly's auto parts and they owned it for mm -hmm. 10 years. And the money that they made from that paid for her college, uh, for her daughter, like yeah. paid the entire college career. I was like, that's pretty awesome. So triple net, I think is something really interesting to learn about. Right. Because the tenant pays for everything, your insurance, your taxes, maintenance, all of it is like on the shoulders of the tenant, which, you know, is it to the advantage for the landlord for sure. Um, how difficult is it to analyze a commercial property? I think you want to look at the cash flow. A lot of it has to do with how much money someone has coming in for the down payment to set up that cash flow scenario. You can obviously dive really deep with that, and full-time commercial brokers really do. I'm not sure exactly how to size up analyzing it. You can turn it into something very large, or it can be more simplified, like a triplex or something like that. Okay. So it depends on the type of commercial business. Yes. I imagine. Yeah. Cause there's a difference in like, like you said, like a triplex or a strip mall or right. a, a mobile home park or, you know, mm -hmm. a laundry mat or whatever it is. 
I think that's so interesting to learn. But as an as an agent that works on commercial, um, did you have to take some additional training or did you sort of wing it and learn on, on the fly? <laughs> I mean, obviously there's a lot of learning on the job, but um, yes, definitely additional training. Um, GRI, I think I haven't finished that, but um, I've taken a lot of financial classes. That's a really nice compliment to a residential business too, I think, because you know, we always talk about multiple streams of income, right? To build wealth. And that is something like if you have more than one niche, that's a, such a strength, I think. I think it's a nice compliment to when you're looking at residential. Definitely. Um, so how's business right now in Bend? What's your market like? It's picked up. I mean, we went through a slow period when the interest rates went up and now it's definitely very busy. Multiple offers still and um, lots of listings coming on the market. We still have a shortage of inventory, which still makes it competitive. That's what we're seeing kind of the same here. It's uh, We had a small blip of slowdown, but not for long. And I've been out with a buyer recently. Um, and I have a cash buyer who's looking at, you know, five hundred to $600,000 for a single family, single level. And we keep getting beat out like, oh, wow. by other cash offers and people coming in even, you know, we, we've come in at the high end of the offer range. Cause I always check with the, with the listing agent, like, you know, if, what can you tell me about the offers that you have? And we've come in strong and still gotten beat out by not just a little bit, but like 30 to $40,000. Oh my goodness. It's crazy. The last one, the second one we did recently, we, there were 11 offers in two days and we got, we're offered backup position, but. Wow. Are you using escalation clauses in your offers? No, a lot of times. Well, not a lot of times. Uh, occasionally I will see in the remarks that they don't want escalations, mm -hmm. which I'm, I'm kind of curious about because it only benefits the seller. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't know why they would say no to that, but uh, some of them don't want them. And others, they'll just give a deadline. And sometimes at the last minute, they'll come back to everybody and they'll say, well, you know, here's a hint on what I have. You have the opportunity to adjust if you'd like. So I'll pass on a, a trick that I actually, I learned from a broker in Colorado. Um, you, she does an open-ended escalation clause. Basically you're giving them a blank check that I will top oh. whatever you get by a thousand dollars or $5,000, whatever you want to make it. And I, that helped me get a lot of deals because sometimes it was only like $2,000 difference and the buyer didn't have an issue going $2,000 more, but you don't know that that's where you need to be. So it would just be an, a blank check. Wow. I have, I don't know. My clients, I think would be a little bit scared of that. Although in this climate, after like this particular buyer that I'm speaking of right now, We've beat out, been beat out twice, both the offers that we've written so far. And then she's been out of town for a couple of weeks. So when she gets back, I think you can explain the market to clients all day long, but until they start experiencing it mm -hmm. for themselves and they get beat out a few times, then they start to realize, oh, I need to adjust well, my strategy. <laughs> right. But the beauty of that escalation clause, it has to come back as a counter offer. And so therefore they're given that opportunity to decline. So if it's, if they're not comfortable with that price, they can just decline the counter and you're not locked in. So it, it's kind of um, a safe way to go. That's a great tip. Over. 
Yes. It's just surprising to me how many cash buyers that are active right now that have the ability to just, you know, and we're looking at, you know, single level, three bed, two baths, nothing. um, It's not like a mansion by any means, you know, (laughs) it's a normal house in a normal neighborhood, but that is the market that we're in. Yeah. It's unusual. I mean, it's, it's different than it ever has been given how competitive it was and I mean, there were all those statistics that a lot of people weren't happy that they bought um, during the COVID time because they overpaid, but I'm not seeing that many more houses come back on the market as a result. No. And now those people, you know, if they sell and they had 3% interest, now they're going to sell and then buy it 7%. It doesn't make sense. Right. So I'm, I'm curious how the inventory will be in the next couple of years. Me too. Because we, you know, we've been in a shortage for a while and I don't see any markers that that's going to change much. (laughs) No. And building materials are more expensive. So I don't know how it can change dramatically. It's definitely tough out there on buyers. I mean, I thought when COVID hit, you know, I was scared the market was going to just disintegrate, but in the opposite happened and that wave lasted for a bit. And then the interest rates started going up. I'm like, okay, now prices are going to start adjusting and they really haven't. A little bit, but not like I thought might happen for sure. Right. That's what I thought too. I thought, oh, things will come down a bit and they haven't. It definitely pushed some people out of the market though. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about your business. Um, What is your best strategy right now for lead gen or getting new clients? Um, So lead generation. So the problem we've had in Bend is finding inventory. So my best strategy, or at least my most successful one of late has been identifying a neighborhood and exactly what my client wants. And then doing a mailing to that neighborhood. I've gotten calls from every single one I've done of people who are willing and ready to sell and wanting to discuss it and really willing to work with you. And the beauty of that is there's no competition because they're not on the market. They're 100% focused on my buyer. And so my buyer has a very calm chance to walk through a house, consider it. They're the only person being considered at that moment. And um, usually the sellers are pretty flexible because they're going to save a little bit on commission. Oh, that's amazing. I I have heard of that before, but I haven't heard anybody say that in a long time. Yeah. I've sold three houses that way this year. Awesome. Yeah. So it's been a good method. Do you do a higher percentage of buyers or sellers, or is it more kind of 50, 50 for you? Um, in the past, it's been mostly buyers because I love the hunt. I love the search. That's my favorite part is to see all the houses and see if I can figure out if it's a fit. Um, but this year I've had a lot more listings. And so it's kind of shifting more towards the sellers. And um, that's been a fun learning curve of like, how am I going to present this in a way that's really optimal for the seller and their house? Uh, are you finding that their expectations are realistic or not realistic when it comes to price. Not always. They, they hear no. what's going on. <laughs> yeah. They they wanted to be like the frenzy that it was and they want to price it that way. And that can be challenging. Yes. How do you convince them or what, what evidence do you present to say, no, I don't think we're quite there. Let's try this. And do they listen? Because I've had that situation before where I'm like, well, here's all the data. Here's what I've personally experienced. Here's what my co-brokers out in the marketplace are saying. And they're like, nope, it's this number. (laughs) I mean, and sometimes that is the case for sure. Um, I, when I do a market analysis, I like to take a 
a five line approach. I do use Zillow, Redfin, my MLS, uh, iCloud, CMA, and NAR, RPR. And I take all those and average them. So they can see these, here's the range from sure. five places. And we know buyers are going to be looking at Zillow and Redfin for sure. So we really want to look at that number because they're going to, that's where they're drawing their knowledge. So sometimes it's helpful when they're seeing it repeatedly from multiple places. And then I'll often ask some of my co-agents to help me price. So, like, mm -hmm. what's your opinion of this? And so if they're hearing, okay, this many people say this price. And then if they still don't want to do it, I'm like, we'll try it for two weeks. You get two weeks at your price. And then we're going to go down to my price. And um, sometimes we have to do that. And sometimes not. I, I always try to tell them too, like, okay, it's, we have a lot of data, but it's not a perfect science. And no. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what's going to happen when we go live on the market. You may have a hundred people through there in the first weekend and be pending, you know, 50,000 over list, or we may be there for two or three weeks and have a trickle. I don't know yet, but you know, there's theory of pricing aggressively at the high end to see what happens. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I try to explain if we do that, we may be sitting there for a little bit. If you're okay with that, we can do that. But if you are more motivated or have a shorter timeline, let's go at the low end and try to drive it up that way. It doesn't mean that the price that is the list price is what you're going to get necessarily. Right. You know, it's kind yeah. of like the suggested offering price. It's a, right. it's a they're not all identical. I mean, they can be your three bedroom, two bath, but maybe this one has a shop or maybe this one is on the corner lot, or maybe this one's next to the park or I mean, they're not all identical. So it's, that's true too. Very true. Um, what kind of coaching or masterminds or mentoring have you had in your career so far that has helped you? I guess what's benefited you the most? I, I love coaching and I love all the, the um, self-improvement. So I have a Buffini coach. I also have a Tony Robbins coach. I've been through most of Tony Robbins courses and um, many of the of Brian Buffini's and they have been super helpful and in different ways to look at your business and how you deal with clients. And then I think there's gold from all the agents. The woman who mentored me, Becky Breeze, she had her own real estate company in Bend for 20 years. She's still working. I think she's been in real estate for 30 years now. Um, she mentored me, but I learned from every transaction and from every person I work with. I mean, I had one person I worked with who taught me a whole lot about finance and how you can look at those numbers and use them to your advantage. And just like my first job or even like my yoga teacher, how they look at things like, how are you going to show up in this situation? And what do you want to bring to your transaction or to your clients? So I think all the, co the coaching is amazing. My Buffini coach, she has helped me double my business almost every year. That's fantastic. So and then the, on, the, on the Tony Robbins side, that's not necessarily real estate specific. So how does that complement the real estate coaching? Well, I mean, we're whole people, so we need to show up with all the parts working. And um, he has a com uh, course called Business Mastery. And you identify um, like your value chain and where things fall apart, like where in your system is it not working or where are your customers not getting fully served and so maybe the transaction isn't closing or, you know, they're moving on to work with someone else. I think thinking about all those steps in the process, you can apply it to real estate um, or really any business. They're more like um, business values. Okay. And is that something that you did before real estate also, or did it coincide? I, I did some of that before real estate, but really took a deep dive into it uh, once I started real estate. 
because it was a different business. It, it's very different to be doing sales versus the service industry. I mean, where my job as an assistant to William Hurt was, you know, to take care of his business, not, he was my only customer. Sure. Whereas I have many more now. When you were coming into 2023 and like doing business planning, did you have a, you mentioned that the coaching has helped you double your business every year. Do you have a, a specific goal? Like I want to double my business every year, or do you think about it as a number of transactions that you're trying to hit or how do you do your planning for the next year to continue growing? This year, my goal was just to be consistent and match the two years prior because they were such big years given COVID. I, my goal this year was really to be consistent and consistent in my marketing and consistent in building my pipeline because those two years were so unusual in how there was just a whole lot of business. It's like, how do you have that consistently? And, and that whole idea of like discipline equals freedom, that if you can put this together in a very consistent fashion, it will be a consistent pipeline. Real estate can be so feast or famine that Definitely. the idea of having a consistent pipeline and business is, <laughs> I mean, that, that you, in my mind, you've made a significant accomplishment if your real estate business is consistent. I agree. That's something that I'm, I'm working on myself. You know, every year I have a, a goal to double my business or do a certain amount of transactions per month. And it's been hard, especially this year, it's been slower for me on my end. And I'm trying to bring in new niches and, you know, do additional things that I didn't do in the past, but it's still a little bit slow. And I'm always looking for, you know, what else can I be doing? What have you found that um, you've integrated or added in since COVID to increase your business? So last year I decided to add a designation, uh, which was seniors real estate specialist or mm -hmm. SRES. And I started approaching cold calling really independent and assisted living communities in my area to call the sales directors and introduce myself, which, you know, there are a lot of realtors who are in that niche already. And, you know, some of the places I would call would say, oh, we already have, you know, somebody that we refer out to or a handful of people, or, you know, we have somebody that's really entrenched in this area, but I would just continue calling and say, okay, I understand, but I'd love to just stop by and meet you short meet and greet, drop off some cards. And a couple of people that I called said, oh, great. I'm so glad that you called me. I don't have any realtors that I know to refer to, or like I'm new in this position and I don't have anybody, please come and drop off some cards. So it's, it's been sort of one or the other, right? There, there hasn't really been a lot of middle ground. It's either they're really happy to hear from me and they're like, yes, please come over now. Or they're like kind of pushing me away. But I just do, I go anyway, if they're willing to let me come over and shake their hand and sit down for 10 minutes and drop off cards, I will do that. Um, but the, the ones that I've gotten listing referrals from so far have been the couple of people that didn't have anyone. And did you design a customer avatar? Do you have a specific customer you want to serve or that's your favorite client? Well, when I came in to real estate in 2017 as a broker, I wanted to focus on investors and I was very heavily in the investor world for several years in doing, you know, helping with live events and auction foreclosures. We used to go, I used to bid on the courthouse steps for flipper clients, that whole world. And then I started adding more traditional clients into the mix. And now I've added the seniors. So I enjoy all, and I do buyers and sellers. So I like both sides of it. 
I'm not really weighing one segment heavier than the others. Although in the last year with the senior side of things, I've been trying to build that up more. So that has been more of my marketing focus Mm -hmm. lately. And do you find they respond more to like print media versus social media or? Well, I've just been doing straight to the community sales directors. I haven't been marketing to the senior population like directly so far. I mean, but with all we hear about the baby boomers, I think you picked a very good population. Well, I figure there's a lot of work there. I mean, it never, you know, it never goes away. Yeah. <laughs> it's just continuing to build up those network, you know, networking relationships. Yeah. Great. That's really good. Yeah. Thank you. Um, are you adding any new niches or focusing heavier on one or the other? Um, lately, a lot of my clients have been women in tech and they are so fun to work with Mm -hmm. because they're so decisive and their, you know, their financial piece is all in order and they know what they want. And the big thing I've been seeing is two remote workers. So, you know, a couple both working remotely and then two kids. And so they're needing a house with, you know, five bedrooms essentially because they need two offices to, they can't share offices because of zoom calls and the noise interference. And so that's been, I've really been trying to find those places where they can have double offices plus a family home. And that's been really fun. And they're just a really fun client to work with. Are they coming from California or what are they already here? Mostly they're coming from California. Okay. So you're seeing a big influx uh, specifically in that niche. That's interesting. It is, um, but it, so many people, not just California, demanding, you know, requiring two offices so they can both work from home. I wonder if that's going to affect builders and in, in changing how they so. do floor plans. I, I'm seeing a lot more with offices. That's very interesting. The double offices. I remember years ago, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, there was a trend of like dual masters or dual primary suites. Oh, right. Yeah. So now maybe the new thing is office, double offices instead. <laughs> That's going to, we're going to see that impact the community as well, because there'll be way less office space like downtown or other places because everyone's working from home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting how it'll affect the commercial world because yeah, those buildings will still change. exist and they might have to find new purpose for them. Yeah. Or maybe change the zoning um, to allow different uses. Right. A lot of creativity can, can happen with that. Yeah, it could be a fun way for it to kind of um, revive or, you know, change, evolve. Sure. Um, is there anything in your business that you are either struggling with or it's just like a thorn in your side that you wish you could offload? <laughs> with like, what's your least um, favorite thing? <laughs> so my hardest, most of my business is referral based. So marketing and social media have kind of been my challenge and I've resisted working on that until I took a mark. I'm in the middle of a marketing course and it's really helpful. And I think that's the thing I've tried farming it out, but the marketing company didn't have my voice that Mm -hmm. I wanted. So I think that's the thing I'm working on and, you know, just making it look polished and look good. It it takes time and it's a learning curve for me. I I would say marketing and and building that consistent pipeline through Mm -hmm. the marketing is Mm -hmm of the challenge. So are you focusing on print or video or like how, what is your, all of those biggest marketing segment, all of them. Okay. Yeah. I mean, definitely I'm starting to work on videos. I've used print a lot because I've gotten such a great response out of like writing those personal letters to people and 
Um, I haven't gotten a great response from just mass mailings. It, it needs to be more specific than that. Like if they know here's a couple with one child and a dog and they want to live in this area so he can go to the school and dad works down the road kind of a thing. They're, they're very receptive to helping those people find a place to live. Whereas if I just said, I sold 20 million last year and I'll get your house sold. They're not as receptive. They get that message often. I was going to say, it seems like there's a lot of people that are doing that. I've never, that's one thing that I haven't done is send mailers like that. And I just figured because everyone else is doing that, like I get them in my mailbox too. And I, I go straight to the recycling bin every single time. Right. You know? And I, it's just like, um, you become immune to it after a while. It, it, there has to be something very different about it to get attention, I think. Right. I think so too. And then video and social media, I'm right there with you. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a process to learn, to get comfortable doing that. I have friends who are amazing at it and, you know, they always give me tips, but I, I, it's the actual doing where you go out and make the videos. It is. I, uh, I've started doing a couple of videos with like different lenders that I know, but I don't have the editing in place. Like, I don't know how to do that or how to hire somebody to do that or what the budget, I mean, I do know how to hire somebody, but there's a wildly ranging budget for that. And also like, I don't have a million dollars in the bank to pay for editing all the time. So oh. I'm trying to figure out what am I going to do? How, what to make that leap and, and be able to do it consistently and do it well. I'm not sure yet. I know. I'm trying to figure that one out too. My husband is a videographer. Oh, that's helpful. Yeah. He'll help me with them, but he's, um, I, th I think there's, a, a niche to research a service like that, that can, um, edit them quickly. Yes, definitely. Uh, I, I keep joking, but I'm kind of half serious. I'm going to train my nine-year-old or have him learn. <laughs> See, he can probably do it just as well. I mean, he's pretty yeah. tech savvy. Uh, believe me, that's crossed my mind too with my kids. They watch YouTube. I'm like, can you help me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. You got to give them something to do anyway, aside from video games. So I think exactly. it's good. <laughs> yeah. Can you give me an example of a really tough transaction that you had and what you learned from it? Sure. So I got my license quite some time ago in 05 and um, 08, 09 was kind of when the real estate market crashed. And I had a client who was actually in the real estate world, she was going through a divorce, a bankruptcy, a short sale, and her house needed a rehab loan. So oh my gosh. On there. So I had to negotiate the short sale, also take it through a bankruptcy attorney and get that rehab loan approved through this whole process. And what I learned from that is you have to follow the chain to the decision maker who can make the decision on this. I mean, you would just upload all this stuff and submit it. And then it was like, it was living in purgatory. And so I learned quickly, you have to find the decision maker to move deals forward. And that's true even now, like when a loan gets stuck, it's like, who, who makes a decision on this? Take me to the underwriter or help me find mm -hmm. this person or, you know, have your loan person go, go find the person who can make the decision. So I think you have to figure out who grants the solution to finish the transaction. And fortunately that one closed, it went through many evolutions before it did. <laughs> How long did it take overall? <laughs> Four months. Four months. That's actually not bad because when I think of short sales, I think automatically like, oh, it's going to be a year, maybe a year and a half. I, no. I hear all these horror stories. I've not personally worked on any myself, so I don't know, but I've just heard through, you know, other people's experiences that it takes forever, especially if it's a big, bigger bank, 
and they yeah. have many different departments and they're all over the country and they're not local. They don't really understand the local market and one department's doing one thing while the other is doing the other and they don't talk. So they don't know. And I've heard of even things getting sent to auction that weren't supposed to because they didn't communicate. So to get through all of that red tape and find the right person, that must take a lot of tenacity. So you have to take a lot of notes. You have to call every day. You have to find contacts and keep their contacts so you can keep reaching out to them. And um, eventually you can find your way there. So from my work in film production, it was the same kind of thing. Like you have to figure out how you're going to get there. And I still use that, like, well, someone sees a house that they want. Well, how can I find out who owns that? And do they want to sell it and talk to them? The same kind of process. It's Um, finding the puzzle pieces. Yes. And I love a little bit of an investigator. (laughs) Yes. It's really fun. I I love the detective work part of it. Well, that's great. If you understand how necessary it is and have figured out the ways to do it and where to get the information from, because that's what makes the best agents. You know, I had... Um, and another podcast guest, and we were talking about water rights mm-hmm. and in her area, that was something that was really important. And most of the other realtors, like she would have clients that have been like, well, I've talked to four other people and nobody said that to me, you know? And she's like, well, I know who to call. I've got the water department guy's cell phone number. <laughs> I'll right. get the answers for you. That's the difference. The saving the County planner planners and knowing the septic approval people and all that kind of stuff. That's what makes the difference. Especially when it comes to land, raw land. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you learned the ins and outs of that? Because there are some things that you have to figure out. I mean, not all land is going to work for the purpose that the buyer may want it for. And there's zoning and, you know, all the, like you said, well, and septic and all these other, sometimes there's environmental overlays and different things. So talk to me about that. I had a the good fortune I had a seller let me help on, she had 180 acres and we divided it. And the key to that was a team of people, the surveyor, a land use consultant, and an attorney. Those made all the difference. Like if you have the experts in their field come in, you can almost always put everything together because it's that team, because as a whole, they know so many people and how those processes work. You know, understanding the land use, always talking to the county, and finding out what your options are with what people want to do with it. And, and also, I think you don't always have to just accept the answer they give you. You can get a variance for many things and that's a good point. continue to ask questions because if the use isn't going to disturb the people surrounding, I think it's oftentimes possible to get that approved. So when you have clients that are looking for land is what do they want to do with it? Do they just want to have like a homestead or are they trying to do like, you know, I see all these YouTubes about people doing tiny home villages or glamping things and, you know, multi-use properties to get multiple streams of income. So what are you seeing the demand for in your area for land? In my area, I see mostly people just want some space. They're coming from a high density location in California or Seattle or or one of those surrounding areas, and they just want space. They, they want to have a farm. They want to have chickens. Mm-hmm. You know, they uh, want a house, and then they want an office that's like in a separate building. Um, that's what I'm seeing here is mostly they just want some space. But the tiny home thing I've run across, I have had clients uh, wanting to build villages or anything like that, but sometimes I'll see the land run into the commercial use, mm-hmm. like preschools and things along those lines. Okay. Very interesting. What do you like to do in your abundance of downtime? 
<laughs> I, I love to get outside. I love to go to the gym, do yoga and go hiking and dig in the garden, travel. And I mean, of course my kids, um, I, I want to be involved with what they're doing. And what, you, what do you like to do in your downtime? Uh, sleep, uh, sleep, <laughs> play with kids, go, you know, uh, we've been trying to get on the bandwagon of doing family bike rides. Oh, nice. Um, we did that during the COVID summer quite a bit, but we've all sort of slacked off on that. So we're trying to like, now that the weather's finally gotten nice again, we're like, okay, we need to get a bike rack so that we can, that's the other thing we've been limited to just our neighborhood because we don't have a bike rack for all four of our bikes. So oh, we yeah. have to get that so that we can actually go drive somewhere and then go on some nice, easy trails. Well, you'll have to come here and go to Sun River. You could bike everywhere and there's trails everywhere. It's really, oh, that would be really fun. That's yeah, super fun. And they're flat and easy for the kids and you, you can go for miles. Oh, that sounds amazing. We have, you know, here in, in the Portland area, we have the Springwater Trail, which is about a 40 mile loop around the city and the outskirts. But unfortunately, I mean, I haven't been on it in quite some time, but I've heard there's a lot of transients and, you know, activity there that I just don't feel comfortable personally myself, nor do I want to take kids not knowing, you know, what I just don't, I don't know. So we do, you know, family movie nights. We've been having all of our kids um, or having our kids watch a lot of eighties movies that we grew up with. Do you have any recommendations? <laughs> well, we just did the back to the future series, which was oh, a big wow. hit. We did Indiana Jones. They loved that. I've got boys. So they, they were very into that. I did actually on Mother's Day, I did Edward Scissorhands. It was my choice and that did not go over well at all. They hated it. And my little one, he's nine, he's not so little, but I had forgotten, like, I didn't remember a lot about it, just that I remembered watching it when I was younger and liking it. Well, it's actually kind of sad. And he was devastated at the end and he was bawling, crying and he hated the movie. I was like, oh my gosh, sorry, <laughs> wrong pick. <laughs> Back to the future would be really fun for my That kids. one was definitely a fun one. I tried Indiana Jones. My daughter didn't go for it. But. No, I've got, I want to do the John Hughes movies, like 16 Candles and Breakfast Club and all of those, but we've got a 16 year old and a nine-year-old. And so they're not really appropriate for the nine-year-old at this point. So we haven't gone there yet, but I tell the older one, like, I have a list for you. <laughs> those, those are fun. That's really fun. It's been really fun. And, you know, we, whoever's night it is to pick the movie gets to pick something special. Like either we're going to have something for dinner that they choose or dessert that of their choosing. So we try to make it, you know, they're, they're all into it. I love that. That's really fun. Mm -hmm. I'd like to get out a little bit more, but we all have very different interests. So we yeah. like, okay, well, we'll just have family movie night and then we'll each go off and do our old own things in the world. But for me, I would love to just like, I always say, I'm going to take a sabbatical every year. I haven't done it yet, but I want to go get a hotel room for like two nights somewhere, maybe at the coast or something or down where you are and take all the books I've been meaning to read um, yeah. <laughs> or that I started, but didn't finish and have a spa day and order a room service. And that's it. Well, that sounds delicious. That sounds Doesn't it? <laughs> just that's like my perfect, time. perfect weekend. Um, I hope you get to take a few days this summer. Thank you. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I think you have some um, interesting niches and perspectives on things that I haven't heard from other brokers before. So it's always nice to get a little bit of a different perspective. Well, it was great to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. And if anybody would like to reach out to you, what's the best way to get a, get a hold of you? 
Um, so my website, Facebook, Instagram is all bendoregonland.com. Okay. And um, my phone number is 541-350-9020. You can shoot me a text. I'm happy to chat and and help other agents. You know, if you want the names of my coaches who I think are phenomenal, I'm happy to share those. And um, I just, I really enjoy help supporting other people in business. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Thank you.